Today's reading is taken from Psalm 95, verses 1 to 11, found in page 591 from your few Bibles. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if only you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did at Meribah, as you did that day at Massa in the wilderness, where your ancestors tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I decided on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. This is the word of the Lord. Join me in prayer. Father, we thank you for this word that is alive, it's electric. And we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would give us hearts and ears that listen well and that are receptive to what you would speak to us. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you were here last week, we launched out our September season looking at Jesus Christ, which is a pretty good place to start, I think. We looked at how Jesus is so inescapable, how he is central to to our life, our shared life. We are a church that is aiming at following Jesus Christ. But the question quickly becomes, how do we then tap into all the life that Jesus offers to us? How do we remain connected to him, to his person? Well, today and for the next two weeks, we're going to look at just how we do that. We're going to get real practical and how we center our lives on Jesus. And we're going to look at key, three key rhythms or practices um, of life in Jesus. And really, these are three key rhythms and practices of life here at Knox. So if you're wondering how to navigate life here at Knox, how to get connected to uh, the, the, the life here at church, these three are going to help articulate what that is about. And, and it's found in three things, in worship, which is what we're going to look at today, in learning in community, and in mission, service. Those three. But today we're going to look at worship. Now, some of you might think, really, do we got to spend time looking at worship? Um, why is that so important? And it is fundamentally, vitally so critical for us to look at this because here is a reality that often happens. Often um, Christians can, on the one hand, believe a pretty lovely and expansive set of convictions. But then... On the other hand, there's the reality of their lives, and there's often a gap between the two of those. There's a gap between what we believe, our stated creed, and our actual lives. And I don't know about you, I get this all the time. People come along and say, 
uh, you know, Christians believe all these things, but they, they just don't live it out. They're just not living out their faith. They're, in reality, they're just as selfish and messed up as everyone else. To put it more starkly, why are Christians such hypocrites? You know, they say one thing but live another. Well, let's look at that real quickly. Two responses. One is theological, and I'll deal briefly with it. The other is practical, and we're going to spend the rest of the message looking at that. But theologically, the first one is that human beings, all human beings are created in the image of God. And so all human beings, image, reflects something of God, a certain amount of wisdom uh, in their minds, a certain amount of of, of the goodness of God in their lives, in their consciences. So whether you believe in God or not, there, there's something about you that bears the image of God. All human rights are premised on that belief. Um, so if you believe in human rights, you believe something about Christian theology. But then on the other hand, here's the other piece of theological reality. All Christians, if you're a Christian, you believe this to your soul. All Christians are filled with pride and, unsel- and selfishness and sin. Why? Because the Christian gospel says you're not saved by being a better moral person. You are not saved by having, being a well-put-together person more than anyone else. No, you're saved because you know you need the grace of God. That's what it means to be a Christian. I need rescue. And so Christians are filled with pride and selfishness and sin. So think about that. Sometimes someone who doesn't believe in God but because he or she is an image bearer of God, can live much better than their non-Christian beliefs would lead them to. But a Christian who's filled with sin and selfishness might live a life far worse than their right beliefs should make them. See the discrepancy? See, that's just sort of basic theology about the image of God and about the effects of sin in all human life. Christians just often don't live up to their beliefs because of that. Now, I say that not to get Christians off the hook here, okay? I'm, that's not what I'm trying to do. And that's why we're going to get to the second reason, the very practical reason that gets at this gap between, between what we say we believe in and how we actually live our lives. The second reason is that we need to connect our beliefs and our life together. We need a functional bridge that links the two of those together. Because the reality is this, you are not just a a head on a stick. You're not just a brain. We are created as whole persons. We have minds, but we have bodies, we have souls, we have emotions, we have wills. And so if you want your beliefs, those things that you have come to intellectually carried in your head, if you want those to get lived out, they have to be somehow just worked through, pressed into your heart through practices, through spiritual disciplines that engage the entire person, mind, will, emotions. That's long been the understanding, the Christian, really the treasury of of wisdom in Christianity, that that the use of these practices, that they generate this Christian character, so much so that, that it becomes second nature to us. So that living like Jesus becomes something you, you don't even think about. It's just habitual. It's that, that's my life. And it happens through practices. But for the past few, I don't know, a long time, we've neglected practices. We've bought into a modernist notion that says, if I think the right things, 
sanctification will follow. We've bought De Rene Descartes' error. He, he, Rene Descartes, the philosopher, said, I think, therefore I am. That's what constitutes a human being. We're thinking beings. The Bible says, no, you know what? We're different than that. Um, but we've bought into that. So we think that if we have the right beliefs, just more teaching, then sanctification is going to follow. That's just not how it works. In regular, routine practices that, that link our beliefs and our living together, that sink roots deep into ourselves so that Christian character grows. It's in these regular routine practices that we learn how to become centered on Jesus Christ and that our living begins to sync up then with our beliefs. You see how important, how practical this is? And the central Christian practice has always been worship. Regular gathered corporate worship. And this particular psalm that we read this morning, classic text that unpacks uh, our understanding of worship. And it's called the Venite. You ever hear that term? This is what it is. It's called the Venite because it's Latin for the first two words. O come. That's the Latin for Venite. Uh, the, the English for vin, the Latin Venite. And through the centuries of the Christian church, they've looked to this psalm as, as really a central shaping text for what we're doing on Sundays for our worship. And it tells us um, first a little bit about what worship is. When we worship, we are, we are giving ultimate worth and value to something. We're engaging the whole person, our heart, our mind, our wills, and using all of our whole person to, to ascribe, to give ultimate value and worth to something. That is worship. We see that here. Um, that it, it's something, worship is something that has to engage the whole person. For example, if you look at verses 1 through 2, we're told, oh come, let's worship joyfully. All sorts of emotions. Shout to the Lord. Sing joyfully. Worship involves our emotions. It's off, I mean, if you look at that, it's, it's a pretty sort of raucous, loud, boisterous event that's going on that's being called for. Um, it's a joyful thing. And then you go down to verse 6 and 7, there's the same call, the same invitation, come, venite. But now you're called to a different response. Come, bow, come, kneel. Subdued postures, postures of, of yielding. They are called to worship submissively with, with your will, an acknowledgement of, of offering your will, your life to someone else. It's talking about a submission of the will. Worship leads you to yield your life. And so it involves a change of life. It involves the volitional side of who we are, your wills. And then verse 7 and, and the rest of the psalm, it talks about listening. Listening is the whole tone of that last part. You have to listen carefully. Don't ignore, the psalmist says. Listen. There's an emphasis on understanding, on listening, on taking in God's Word. So, so you have your mind, you have your will, you have your emotions, and all of those using your body, right? Because you listen with your ear. You exercise your will in daily life with your actual lived life. You sing with your voices. The full person is engaged. Now think about that. what that means. If worship is just about the mind or the intellect, if, if that's how you see worship, and you, you, you never see the beauty, your heart never melts for the beauty of the gospel, you, you've missed something of worship. Or if it's all emotions, if it's all experiences, whether that's emotional experiences or aesthetic experiences, but there's no yielding, there's no leading you to, to bow, to kneel, to humbly change your life 
there's something about your worship that you missed. If they're not all together, you're not worshiping because worship takes your beliefs and uses your, these bodily practices and drives them deep into our hearts so that they really change us. But there's more. We're getting to the heart of this practice of worship. Worship is, is we talked about ascribing ultimate worth, um, giving ultimate worth. And that's really the literal meaning of our English word, worship. It comes from an old English word called worth-ship. Um, that's where we get worship. And it's, it's giving worth. It's ascribing value to something ultimate. But what does that mean? How do we do that? Look at the psalm. Verses 1 and 2, it says, Come, let us sing for joy. Let us shout aloud. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For, and that's the little hinge, that's the little turn, that, that little preposition for. Why? Why? Because, for. And that what launches all the joy, what launches and ignites all this singing and emotion is Something about God. For the Lord is God, the great God. And then go down to verses 6 and 7. Again, similar thing. We're called come, worship. Come, let us bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker. Why do this? What's going on? Um, what's the hinge that leads us to that sort of response? For he is the shepherd. He is our shepherd. See how this is working? The psalmist is saying, you know what? There's, there's good reasons for all of this emotional, volitional response to God. The psalmist is meditating, he's considering, he's treasuring, he's, he's sort of doing an inventory of all the excellences of God and all the joy and all the emotion of worship, all the life change that flows in worship is, flows from what this psalmist is doing. This, he's taking an inventory of all the goodness and all the excellences of God, sort of rehearsing them enumerating them, reflecting on them, savoring them until there's this ignition of worship in his life. In verse 3 to 5, we, we see the first of those inventories of, of God's excellences, this dwelling on the beauty of God. He says, the Lord is the great God, the King above all gods. In that time and culture, they had a whole panoply of deities, and so they had a water god and a mountain god and the psalmist is saying you know what there's actually one god overall it's not that little water sea god it's not the mountain god not the field god no 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 it, there's one who created all things there's one creator and in him all created things were made things in heaven and earth visible and invisible whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities everything has been created by this god for him he's before all things in him all things hold together this is who we worship but more than that there's a sense of which he he rules over all he endures over all he is the great king over all others Ever get a sense of that for God? The British journalist Malcolm Muggeridge is helpful. In 1980, somewhere near the end of his life, he, he wrote a piece. And he looked back on his life, and he was observing all the changes that he had witnessed in his life. And he writes this. He says, when we look back on history, what do we see? Emperors, empires rising and falling, revolutions and counter-revolutions, wealth accumulating and then being dispersed, one na nation dominant and then another. And he said, in my lifetime, 
I have seen one, my own countryman, ruling over a quarter of the world. He was an Englishman. So he said, we've seen England rule over a quarter of the world. I've heard a crazed, cracked Austrian proclaim to the world the establishment of a German Reich that would last a thousand years. I've heard an Italian clown announce he would restart the calendar to begin with his own assumption of power. And a murderous Georgian brigand entered the Kremlin, acclaimed by the intellectual elite of the Western world as wiser than Solomon, more enlightened than Ansoka more humane than Marcus Aurelius. And then he continues, I've seen America wealthier in terms of military weaponry, more powerful than the rest of the world put together so that they could do as they wish. They could have outdone Alexander or Julius Caesar in the range and scale of their consequences. All in one little lifetime I've seen this. And yet all gone with the wind. England, now part of just an island off of the coast of Europe, threatened by dismemberment, even bankruptcy. Hitler and Mussolini dead and remembered only in infamy. Stalin, a forbidden name. And America, haunted by fears of running out of that precious fluid that keeps their motorways roaring and smog settling, troubled by memories of disastrous military campaigns. All in one lifetime, all gone, gone with the wind. He's saying all these vaunted claims of so many who will claim so much for themselves, all the, the allegiances that they have asked from people, what's left? Nothing. Except for the Lord, the great King above all gods. And in worship, what we do is we sort of clear away the debris of history and we see that beyond all the supermen of history stands the glorious figure of Jesus Christ, the great King, the one in whom, through whom, the world will find peace, the creator of the world, the ruler of history. And worship, worship emerges as we take an inventory of that reality in God. In verse 7, we see the psalmist taking another inventory of reasons uh, for worshiping God, and he says this, for God is our shepherd. And he's calling to mind all those stories from, from Scripture, all those things about the Bible that has to do with God and this very tender, caring quality, this shepherd. This great God that he's just thought about is not distant, not aloof, has no time to care. No, 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 no. This creator God provides. He loves. He knows us. Notice how the language is so personal. He is our God. We're the shepherd of his people, of his pasture. This is actually his covenant language. It's the language of a committed relationship. He's enumerating and reflecting on God's covenant care. He's, he's, God is not only powerful, but he's tender. We can trust him with our lives. And so that you're led to, to yield, to bow, to kneel, knowing your head's not going to be lopped off before this power, but actually lifted up. And in both, what the psalmist is doing is, is this reflecting, this treasuring of all the excellencies of God until there's, there's this ignition of, of emotion and this explosion of change. That's worship, this ascribing ultimate worth to something. And, and why this is so vital for us to, to consider, so very practical, is because whether you're a Christian or not, we all worship. 
You see that in verse 3. Again, for the Lord is the great God, the great king above all gods. The assumption here is, you know what? There are many gods that people will place their trust in and offer their lives. Many things we make God-like. And the reason we need to think about worship is we all worship. You are already ascribing ultimate worth to something in your life. The world is not divided simply into, you know, two categories of, of people who worship and people who don't worship. Um, religious people, irreligious people. That's, that's not the case. The world is, is better divided into this. People who worship things that will ultimately distort or destroy their lives. And people who worship the only proper object worthy of the worship of their lives, of their souls. Those are the only two prospects here. You're either worshiping wrong things that are going to suck the life out of you, or you're worshiping the one for which worship will not distort your life, but flourish, bring flourishing to you. And that's not just a Christian claim. I got to tell you that. That's just wisdom. There's a postmodern novelist, David Foster Wallace, brilliant novelist and writer, not a Christian, but he named this reality. He was speaking to a college, Kenyan college, and he gave a commencement address, and he said this, partial quote is in your bulletin, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, atheism is just not an option. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And then he talks about the danger of not realizing the things that we actually do worship. Um, and leading, he says, how it'll destroy us. Listen to this. He says, pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, you'll never have enough. You'll never feel like you have enough. Worship your body and beauty and sexual allure, he says, and you'll always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you'll die a million deaths. Worship power, you'll end up feeling weak and afraid, and you'll just need more power to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart, you'll end up feeling so stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. He's asking, what are you worshiping? What are you giving your life to? Christianity calls us, invites us to worship the God who will not eat you alive but who gives his life for you, who will not demand that you put down your life for him, who will not demand sacrifice, but first gives his life for us. Christianity invites us to worship Jesus Christ who has given his life for us, who has died on the cross, who has taken the sin and brokenness of the world, who is now working out the healing of this world. And our worship is part of that healing. That's the wonder of worship, how it is God, part of God's healing. Worship is not just us coming, you know, and doing a duty. Worship is recognizing somehow we, we have given our hearts to something else. And worship is a time, a process where every time we reflect on God through our singing or our praising or our listening or our prayers, every act of worship is healing us because it's pulling us away, moving us from whatever it is we have given our hearts to and moving us to the true object of worship, to the one who will not destroy your life, but only give you life. It heals us. It centers us on Christ, the one who is redeeming all things. Well, to finish up, let's, let's look at 
how this beautiful healing thing of worship works. We're taught about the nature of worship here in this song. Um, some of the how of worship. And, and all we have time really is for two. Um, and we're, we see how we need to worship corporately and how there's actually a structure, a flow, a form to worship. First, one of the obvious things about the whole psalm is, is it's plural, right? Oh, come let us. It's all about us. It's not, oh, come let me. No, no, no. It's all plural. It's all about us. Now, why is that important? I mean, I bet there are times where you have thought, can I just stay home and pray? Um, it's pretty inconvenient, isn't it, to go to church? You know, I'm a pretty busy person. Don't like half the people there anyway. Come on. Besides, I can download better sermons and better music and better prayers all online available to me, right? Why do I have to come to church and do this with others? And you could do that, but you've got to realize you've accepted sort of a pagan version of spirituality, a very version of spirituality that is privatized, that is disembodied, a spirituality that you can live mostly through your mind. That's what Gnostics were all about, right? Oh, just give me some knowledge. Just give me some knowledge that is going to change me. That's not Christian worship. That's not Christian spirituality. The gospel, the Christian gospel is the scandalous message that God works through the flesh and blood stuff of life, that salvation is about relationship, one that necessarily connects us with other people who are now part of us because we are part of Christ. And so every time we go to church, we declare we are not individuals. I am not my own, but I belong to something bigger and larger, which is Jesus Christ and his body. I am made up by these new relationships with other people. They're not always easy. They're not always comfortable. No, but they are what make me up. We are saved and we are formed in relation. And, and, and so here's the truth. You and I will never know God fully unless we corporately worship, corporately pray, corporately study the Word of God. We have to do it together. Otherwise, we'll never fully know God. We'll have a distorted little privatized view of God, certainly, unless we're willing to pray and talk and listen and worship together. That's the reason why corporate worship is so vital. It's the reason why we put on services like this, why we're, we're, we're here, why people volunteer to support, why musicians and uh, volunteers invest time and energy, because corporate worship is so crucial. But so many people think, well, come on, really, can I be a Christian and not go to church, Right? Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've thought that. And if you mean, well, can I be saved and not go to church? Well, of course, because you're not saved by going to church, right? We're saved by Jesus Christ. But is it true that you can experience a whole life change and not go to church? No, it will not happen. The idea that you can be a changed life Christian and not go to church is just false. So worship corporately. Secondly, talks about there's a rhythm to worship um, here. And when you look at Psalm 95, you notice there's a pretty clear structure to it, a form. There's, for the first five verses, there's this praise. There's this joy. And then there's, for the next couple of verses, this, this yielding, this submission. And then, then at the end, there's this listening to God's voice. Praise, confession, listening, word. That's the flow and structure of our worship. 
That's the flow of Christian worship. We start with praise, and there's this confession piece in the middle, and there's this hearing word at the end. That, that's the, Psalm 95 has, has significantly shaped Christian worship for the past millennia. And this is why, I've got to tell you, every part of our service is important. Please don't come in, you know, just at certain parts and then head out whenever you want. And I, I, I don't want to be the scolding type, okay? I'm not the finger-wagging guy, seriously. And I, I know because we live in Toronto and we're busy people, it's easy to come late to stuff. And some of us come late all the time, and it's just become a bad habit. And you miss some important parts of worship. Um, it's the whole of worship that is critical, and that, that does its changing work. So I want to end with two challenges, okay? First, this is probably the biggest one. Come to church weekly. Come to worship weekly. I just want to lay that down. Commit to worship weekly. And I get that travels might take you out of town sometimes. And if, if that's the case, go worship at a church wherever you're traveling to. Tell us what you've learned from that. But commit to the practice of weekly worship. Christians throughout history have named that as so central. But, but of late, we've, we've pretty much de-emphasized it. You know, we've come up with a long list of reasons to avoid it. I, I think we treat it like a consumer commodity. You know, something that we can sort of take or leave. I'm challenging you to commit to regular weekly worship. I'm serious. Think, think for a minute of some baseball players. We're all on the bandwagon now, right, of the Blue Jays, so you know who Josh Donaldson and Jose Batista are, right? Got to find out. If not, class baseball players, do you think they blow off batting practice? I'm sure sometimes they feel like, oh, really? Do I got to do this? Actually, you know what? I, I don't even think they allow themselves to think that. Because they know it is in regular, daily practice that allows them to become the stature of baseball players they have become. Think of a musician. Because they have centered their lives on musical excellence, they will practice till their fingers are numb or bloodied because it is training in them a second nature capacity to do what they feel called to do. Do you think you're any different in trying to center your life on Jesus Christ without that regular practice. If you want to bridge the gap between belief and what you live, practice worship regularly. And then secondly, understand how worship works because it's really important for us to understand it. You know, we don't want to just blindly, mindlessly go through a ritual. Part, I think that's part of our problem. We don't, we don't know why we do what we do in worship. And, and um, so what we've done is, in your bulletins, there's a little handout. Looks like this. Worship. Why we do what we do. And it just walks through the whole service and outlines, here is why we do what we do. And I encourage you to study that this week. To, to, it's sort of a compact theology of worship. Look at it. Talk to your kids about it. Because I think our children need to understand why we do what we do in worship. Um, you're you're going to worship far better. You'll have a sense for the flow and purpose of worship. And remember, we do these practices for a reason, for a purpose. We do it to live such beautiful, grace-filled lives that reflect Jesus. That's why. The best case for Jesus, the best case for a Christian faith is to live consistently beautiful, Christ-like lives, to live our daily lives that are so filled with the light of Christ that they sparkle with such loveliness and beauty that comes from Jesus, 
that people want to know the source of it. And that life comes through practice. Who knew? Who knew that the simple practice of showing up at church every week could be the most spiritually formative, radically countercultural thing you did? So see you next Sunday then, okay? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you, God, for all the ways that you come to us and you create means that are so accessible, we might call them ordinary to us. You don't, you don't call us to go up to your level. You come down, you meet us, and you meet us in the everyday things like a, a simple practice. Thank you for the practice of worship in which we can rehearse all these beautiful elements of our faith and in which through these bodily actions you ingrain in us the reality of the life of Christ so that we might live it out every day in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our homes. We pray, would you make us skillful worshipers? Thank you for Psalm 95 for the beauty of it. Make us a worshiping community. Help us to overcome any hindrances that we might have to us Empower us by your Spirit. Help us to see Jesus in all we do as we worship. In his name we pray. Amen.